You are listening to New Covenant Fellowship. Don't judge me. Don't judge. Do not judge. The Bible says, don't judge. Ever heard somebody say that before? Seems to be the most popular and well-loved Bible verse, aside from the one in Hezekiah 3 that says, God helps those who help themselves. But the difference is that, well, unlike God helps those who help themselves, do not judge is actually in the Bible. And it's where we will pick up this morning in Matthew chapter 7. Go ahead and turn there with me now. And in case this is either your first Sunday with us or it's been a while for you, let me kind of catch you up as to where we are. Uh, Last summer, we began to discuss and explore the doctrine of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that community or territory over which Christ reigns as king. And so we started out, we did a 15-part series entitled The Kingdom, What It Is, where we explored, you know, quite a bit about what the Bible, which wasn't exhaustive by no means, uh, by any means, uh, but we explored what the Bible had to say foundationally. What, what exactly is the kingdom? And then we moved into a 10-part series entitled The Kingdom, What It's Like, where we explored the parables of Jesus, in which Jesus repeatedly says the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells a parable, and we kind of explored those, and now... We are smack dab in the middle of a series entitled The Kingdom, What It Means, where we're saying, okay, based on what it is, based on what it's like, what does it mean for you and I as citizens in the New Jerusalem, as citizens of the kingdom of God, what does it mean for us? How can we apply some precepts and some principles to our lives as citizens in the kingdom? And thus far, we've seen in this study that God has raised up Jesus as a new Moses leading a new covenant community out of a spiritual Israel, leading them on a spiritual exodus into a new promised land, into a heavenly kingdom. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, as the new Moses, is preparing this new covenant community for life in the new Jerusalem, life in the new land, the heavenly kingdom. And so now here we are, we've made our way through Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 6, and we pick up this morning in Matthew 7, verse 1. I'm reading out of the NIV. Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet And then turn and tear you to pieces. Now, as always, I think a healthy place for us to begin is to try to discern what it is that Jesus intended to communicate to his original audience. So that's where we will begin. And surprise, surprise, my interpretation of this text is not really in line with the majority interpretation as far as original intent. Um, That comes as no surprise to you, I'm sure, but 
Let me explain. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, I believe that we have seen Jesus making a contrast between two ways. The way of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the way that they modeled and the way that they were um, advocating, and Jesus' way. Two different ways. And I believe that this text right here on judging follows a similar pattern. If we recall what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 with regard to the Pharisees in their way, he said continually, do not be like them. When you fast, don't be like them, for they disfigure their faces. When you give, don't be like them, for they sound the trumpet. When you pray, don't be like them. They love to stand in the synagogues, in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. Don't be like them. Rather, when you do these things, do them in secret. It's got this contrast. Their way, my way. And here I believe that Jesus is following the same pattern in which he condemns the way of the Pharisees with their fault-finding, nitpicky, hypercritical, hypocritical judgment. Do not be like them. And, uh, and we've already explored some of Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus explicitly calls them out for their hypocrisy. In that passage, don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll just read these couple of verses to you. Matthew 23, 23 and 24, if you're taking notes, Jesus says to them, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, Without neglecting the former, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Notice first there that Jesus calls them hypocrites. That's pretty explicit. We are identifying who the hypocrites in his generation were. The religious leaders, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and those who followed their ways. Now notice that he condemns their focus. He condemns their priorities. He condemns the fact that they were paying more attention to and focusing in on these less important matters of the law. How much of your spices you're giving? While neglecting very important matters like how to treat people, justice, mercy, faithfulness. And he calls them hypocritical for it. So back in Matthew 7 where we're camped out, where Jesus speaks and says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First remove that plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So I believe we see a connection here with this idea of hypocrisy. And in case you're not aware, the Bible uses metaphor. Okay? Don't think Jesus is talking about a literal piece of wood here. I believe that Jesus is using plank and speck of sawdust with respect to more important matters of righteousness versus less important matters of righteousness. You guys are guilty of heinous and grievous sins before God, and all the while you're being nitpicky fault finders with regard to these petty, insignificant matters. And look at how you're treating people. You whitewashed tombs who on the inside are full of dead men's bones. 
And the Pharisees and teachers of the law were guilty of the biggest plank of them all. And I, I believe that Jesus brings this to light with the way that he caps off this section. You may wonder, what? In that, what? I'm not really seeing the connection between the pigs and the dogs and the sacred and the trample. What's that about? So he ends this section with saying, do not give what is sacred to dogs and do not cast your pearls before pigs. Uh, recall our series on the, on the parables where Jesus said the kingdom is like a pearl of great price. I believe that, once again, metaphor, not talking about literal pigs and literal dogs here. Throughout the scriptures, we've got metaphor. We've got animals representing people. You may recall in our, our study on Isaiah 11, we've got unclean animals lying down with clean animals representing Jew and Gentile equality in the kingdom. So also here, we've got animals representing people as a metaphor. In their day, they referred to Gentiles or those outside of Israel, according to the flesh, as dogs. We see this when uh, a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and, 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 and wants him to operate in her life. And she says, you know, I came only to the law. She, he says, I came only to the law. She the house of Israel. And she pleads with him. And he says, it's not right to, to take the bread from the children and give it to the dogs. Whoa, Jesus, who are you calling a dog? Sounds a little judgmental, don't you think? But in their day, they referred to those outside of Israel as dogs. The Gentiles were dogs. And pigs, specifically, they referred to the Romans as pigs. Dogs and pigs were <coughs> unclean animals. And clean and unclean with regard to animals was huge in the Jewish mindset. So, uh, and, and today, you and I in America, we have dogs as pets and they're cute and cuddly, right? Not in their day. In their day, dogs were these street animals. They were unclean. They weren't cute, cuddly pets that sit in your lap and not the same, okay? Unclean. So Jesus is using very strong language here, and he says, do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not cast your pearls before pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, I believe this is a very, very pointed reference. All right? Because the religious leaders of Jesus' day, by the end of his ministry, we find that they're essentially in bed with Rome. Okay? We see that this scarlet beast, or this, this harlot dressed in scarlet, is riding upon the beast. We, we find that you know, the Romans, they weren't persecuting Christians until the Jews, who were unbelievers, incited them to do so. Okay? They didn't really care. But... Because the Jews took the mark of the beast and said, you know what? Crucify this man. We have no king but Caesar. Talk about giving what is sacred to pigs. Casting pearls before swine. Giving what is sacred to dogs. Talk about a plank sticking out of their eye. And all the time, hey, are you giving a tenth of your spices? Are you? You took too many steps on the Sabbath. That's not kosher. Nitpicky, fault-finding, and all the time, plank sticking out of their eye. The kingdom is ours for the taking, but we will reject the true king 
and say, we have no king but Caesar. Well, sure enough, within that generation, those dogs, those pigs, as it were, did trample them underfoot and tear them to pieces. As we know that in 70 AD, the Romans came and destroyed the Jews, trampling their temple underfoot, tearing them to pieces. Now, Jesus says here, do not judge or you too will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, they wanted to judge in a very strict way according to the law of Moses. And so, okay, you want to use that as your measuring rod? Jesus is like, we can use that as your measuring rod. Deuteronomy 28, covenant stipulations, you walk in disobedience to God, I will bring a foreign army against you to destroy you. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You want to use a strict measurement of the law of Moses? We can do that. I, on the other hand, came to bring in the age of grace. Your way or my way? Two ways. Do not be like them. So, essentially, I believe Jesus is calling his original audience to not live as the nitpicky, hypercritical, hypocritical, fault-finding ways of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, what about you and I today as citizens of the kingdom? Can you and I draw out any application for our lives? Well, I believe we can. First question I would ask is, is Jesus here saying that there should be no kind of judgment whatsoever? No judging, period. No judgment at all. Well, I don't believe so, because throughout the scriptures, we've got the Bible calling believers to make evaluations, to render decisions, which is essentially what the word means in Greek. To judge here is to to decide or to divide, make a distinction. We're called to use discernment and use discretion and make decisions and evaluate. So I don't believe that Jesus is saying, do not judge under any circumstances in any way whatsoever. I don't believe he's saying that. Furthermore, in fact, we find in John chapter 7, um, beginning in verse 21, Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though it didn't actually come from Moses, but the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly, or your translation may say, make a right judgment or judge rightly. Notice that Jesus did not say, hey, 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 you're judging. Stop judging. I said, do not judge. Remember my sermon on the mount? And I said, do not judge. You're doing it. I said, don't. You're doing it. He said, make a right judgment. Judge rightly. He didn't say no judgment whatsoever. So I believe that he is saying, do not judge with condemnation. He's saying, do not um, judge in that hypercritical uh, nitpicky way of the Pharisees. Now, marketplace in Matthew chapter five or Matthew seven. Turn over to First Corinthians five. We'll read through the entire chapter here, uh, and I will say up front, 
that unfortunately I cannot give this passage all of the attention that it deserves right now. Uh, I just want to draw out a couple of points in this, in this text. And I may raise more questions than I can answer in the process, but let's go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth who had written him a letter telling him about all kinds of things going on in the church, and Paul is responding to this letter. And in it, he says, 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the... <gasps> Paul, do not judge. Pass in judgment, Paul. I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So, when you are assembled... And I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan, and the Greek word there just means adversary or accuser, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter, this is a previous letter he's referring to, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but a sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now this is tricky because it seems to fly in the face of that whole idea of do not judge. Paul here seems to be saying... Judge! I've already passed judgment. So again, no way I can deal exhaustively with this text and do it justice in light of the fact that it's not our primary text this morning. It's an auxiliary text. So I'm going to keep this brief. But question, what is the point of the judgment that is being rendered in this passage? Well, to purify the church for the glory of God and for the good of the people. And I want to point out, number one, Paul didn't have a plank sticking out of his eye. Not at this point. He used to. He used to persecute the church and put them to death. But long before he wrote this letter, he got rid of that plank so he could see clearly to remove specks of sawdust from his brother's eye. And he, he's not exactly dealing with specks of sawdust here, is he? He's dealing with a plank. He's dealing with the kind of plank that even those outside of the covenant community are not cool with. 
It's reported that there's sexual immorality among you, the kind that not even the pagans are okay with. Something that had to be dealt with. He's not saying, I heard that one of you guys is not eating kosher. Heard that one of you guys is not keeping the Sabbath. Oh, he's dealing with a plank, not a speck. It's kind of a big deal what Paul is dealing with. And, and I believe that Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to do the very same thing that Jesus encouraged his audience to do. Make a right judgment. Evaluate and render a proper decision. But the main point that I want to drive home from this text, the whole point of us going there, is this. As citizens in the kingdom, you and I are not to judge or to pronounce judgment upon those outside of the kingdom. Please, please do not pronounce judgment upon those outside of the kingdom. Paul says, verses 12 and 13, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Think about it this way. You and I are citizens in the kingdom of heaven. You and I bow the knee to King Jesus. We are held to the standard of the decree of the king. They're not. And think about it this way. Are we as Americans to go over to Africa and impose upon citizens of Africa American laws? I don't think that they would appreciate that very much. They're not American citizens living on American soil. We don't go into their territory and tell them that they need to live according to the standards of our culture. We are to live according to the standards of our kingdom. We do not impose that upon them. How would you like it if a Muslim were to come up to you and say, Whoa, whoa, what are you doing eating? It's the month of Ramadan. You're supposed to be fasting right now. Well, thank you very much, but I'm not a part of that. Don't impose that rule upon me. I'm not a part of, I don't buy into your religious convictions. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And I abide by the rules of my king and his decrees. I don't think that people outside of the kingdom of heaven, I don't think that people who do not call Jesus Lord would appreciate us imposing those things upon them. Which, it's not surprising that when the Barna group surveyed our society, that 87% of those surveyed said that Christians were judgmental. Why? Why would they think that? If you and I are not judging those outside the church, but making evaluations within the body of Christ just, why would they get that impression? Unfortunately, I think over time, Christians have failed in this. And we have said to those outside of the church, hey, thou shalt not. Hey, the Bible says. Do they care what the Bible says? 
So, since Jesus is not con condemning all forms of judgment whatsoever, blanket statement, no judgment, period, we see clearly that there is some form of judgment that God's people are called to. First point, do not judge those outside of the church. What else? Well, again, we are to judge rightly. We are to evaluate rightly. John 7, do not judge by mere appearance. Make a right judgment. Get the facts. Don't be hasty. All right? For example, what if this morning you showed up a little early and you saw me walking across the premises of the page house with an empty beer can? Could you just say, you know what? David was drunk Sunday morning when he was preaching. <laughs> Logical leap, right? Had an empty, empty beer can. I mean, he was clearly drunk. Well, what if there was an event last night at the Page House, like, you know, a wedding, and there were empty beer cans left over and I was cleaning up? Don't judge by mere appearance. Get, get the facts first. Make a right judgment. Now, additionally, in addition to making a right judgment along these lines, I believe that you and I need to be very careful, very cautious. It's important that when we render a decision, when we render an evaluation about one's conduct, we need to be careful not to call something sin that the Bible doesn't call sin. Okay? Jesus says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But I don't hear him saying... With whatever measure you use for yourself, you can use that measure on other people. You see, we all have our own personal walk with Jesus. We have a relationship with our Lord, and we may have our own personal convictions about matters that the Bible is silent. You know? We need to be careful not to act as if those were biblical mandates, when in reality they are simply personal Convictions. You need to be careful not to impose those convictions upon somebody else and judge them according to that standard. I may be convinced in my own heart that watching rated R movies is sin. Dancing is a sin. <laughs> Playing cards is a sin. Drinking alcohol, period, sin. It's the devil. TV, don't even turn it on. Facebook is the devil. You know what? Any of you doing any of those things? <coughs> Not walking in righteousness. Okay. <laughs> Check yourself. You live like me. You need to be careful when making evaluations, when making decisions about one's conduct that we don't impose our own personal convictions as if they were biblical mandates or biblical standards. <clears throat> and additionally, I believe the text is pretty clear that we should not judge with hypocrisy. Okay? I think Jesus' illustration with the man with the plank sticking out of his eye trying to take a speck of sawdust out of a brother's eye is quite fitting for this. In other words, I don't think that we should be walking around sin in people's life as the sin police ready to bring the hammer down on somebody if there's going to be any critical evaluation of somebody's life it needs to be our own okay. examine our 
own lives. Then we can see clearly to remove a speck from a brother's eye. And oftentimes I believe that if you and I are truly to stop and examine our hearts to see whether there is sin in our lives, I think that we might more oft than not opt to pass on passing judgment. Hmm. Now does that mean that in order that we might be able to criticize others, examine others, fault find, nitpick, that, all right, cool, let me just get myself in order first. Okay, get rid of this thing, get rid of, get myself right so that, ah, now I'm good. Now I can go and pick specs. Well, what would that say about our motives? Is your motive for getting right or removing sin from your heart, is your motive so that you can go and judge people? Or is it because you love God and want to walk in righteous ways that please Him? So much of the Sermon on the Mount and so much of life in the kingdom comes down to this. The heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. I believe that passing judgment upon somebody, pronouncing judgment or evaluating or criticizing is not something that we should be quick to do. I believe that we should be slow. And when it comes to our heart, if we're like, you know, Jesus isn't condemning all forms of judgment, so we can, we can judge. Well, what's our motive for that? What is the goal, trying to help someone or tear them down? You wanting to build people up or tear them down? Are you wanting to help or to harm? Are you wanting to sanctify or condemn? You want to tear somebody down so that you can feel better about yourself or look better in front of others? Or do you ultimately want to help them look good before others? Do you have their ultimate good in mind? I think that's a healthy question to ask because that will determine how you go about passing judgment. Now when it comes to judgment in the kingdom, making evaluations, making decisions, I believe it requires discernment. I believe it requires knowing the people with whom you are interacting having a relationship. You have to use discernment. Because here's the thing. Some people, there's, there's different forms of criticism, right? That's a form of judgment, right? There's constructive criticism and there's destructive criticism. And constructive criticism can be very help, helpful and healthy. And when you're objective, it sounds great. But not everybody really likes that. In fact, I don't know very many people who like criticism in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I can only think of one person I know that actually receives it well and welcomes it. And I respect him for it. Therefore, I believe that we should be very cautious and careful when offering it. And not everybody needs it. Some people need it. 
because they're having a hard time seeing what's going on, or maybe they're, uh, maybe they're not well-versed in the scriptures, and so they need to be shown, hey, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the scriptures it says this, and they may need to be shown. Most often, probably don't even need to be shown. Have you ever messed up before? Anybody in here ever messed up? Yeah, I'm not the only one. Okay. Have you ever messed up, and you knew it, you already knew you messed up, and you're feeling terrible about it. Your conscience has convicted you, and you're feeling even condemned in your own mind and in your own heart. You feel terrible, and then somebody else comes along and says, Hey, dude, you know you totally screwed up. On... It's the last thing you need, right? Thanks so much. I'm already battling with it in here. The last thing I needed was for you to come along and pile on the condemnation. I'm already trying to remind myself I am a blood-bought child of God whose sins have been wiped away. I have been forgiven. I am not guilty before him in his eyes. last thing we need is somebody to come along and make us feel guilty. Let's not do that to others. Let's be cautious. Let's use discernment when it comes to offering up criticism. Most people don't want it. And if people do not want criticism, they're probably not going to receive it well. And then what good is it? This brings us to our next point. And here, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. We're going to get here uh, down the road. But in Matthew 7, 12, Jesus kind of brings in my, what, in my opinion, is essentially the thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount, and that is, do to others what you would have them do to you. I think this is an extremely helpful litmus test when it comes to making judgments. How do you want people to approach you? You want people to approach you as if they were the sin police? nitpicking and fault-finding, ready to bring the hammer down, bring condemnation upon you? Probably not. Let's not do that to other people. Or would you want people to love you and have your best interest in mind? Probably so. Let's try to approach people that way. We probably, in here, making assumptions here, but I'm assuming that everybody in here would probably want people to approach us with tenderness and compassion, kindness, love, mercy, and grace. Since that's how we want to be treated, let's make sure that we do that to others, that if we are in the process of making an evaluation, a judgment about conduct or whatever, let's do so clothed in compassion and loving kindness. I think that needs to be at the forefront of our minds as we make a right judgment. Now another point uh, that I think is important to draw out with regard to making judgment or passing righteous judgments. We need to be careful not to bring an air of condemnation with it. I think Jesus modeled this very well. Once a woman was caught in the act of adultery, the 
religious leaders brought her before Jesus and said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now the law says, the law of Moses says, she needs to be stoned to death. You think about that, Jesus. What do you say? Because you've been doing this whole, don't be like them, do what I say. What do you say? What do you say about this situation, Jesus? And his response is, well, all right. Whoever of you is without sin, you be the first one to pick up a stone. Huh. One by one, they all walked off. Jesus looked up at the woman and said, where are those who condemn you? She said, they're gone. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. Jesus made a judgment. He didn't say, oh, adultery's fine. He acknowledged her sin as sin. He acknowledged that her conduct was inappropriate. But he didn't condemn her. And after not condemning her, he caused her to live a life of righteousness. He didn't say, well, that's okay. There's no condemnation. Keep doing it. He said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. That tension between the real and the ideal. Jesus calls us to an ideal. The ideal is don't even be angry with your brother in your heart. The reality is sometimes we are. Jesus calls us to an ideal. The ideal is don't even look at another woman lustfully if you're not married to her. The reality is, well, it's about to be summertime and women like to not wear a lot of clothes and jog along. The reality is that happens. The ideal is marriage is a permanent union. The reality is sometimes they end in divorce. There's the real and there's the ideal. Jesus does not call us to settle for the real, but to strive for the ideal. And when we don't reach that bar, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if Jesus does not condemn, who are we to bring condemnation upon others? Who are we? to bring a judgment of condemnation upon others when we're sinners and God has not condemned us. So as Jesus modeled, I believe that we should follow. We should call people to the ideal. And, and the attitude with which we do that is important. It's not a, hey, you need to be, and hey, you, thou shalt not. It's a, we are servants of our master. Let's please him. We acknowledge sin is sin. We call a spade a spade. We don't walk around as nitpicky fault finders. We don't condemn sin. We don't condemn the sinner. 
in a judgmental, condemnatory way. But we do call one another, hey, let's, let's strive for that ideal. Additionally, in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, as we strive to make a right judgment, as Jesus calls it, we need to be careful not to bring an air of condemnation with that judgment. For those who have been declared not guilty by the judge of all, let's not make people feel guilty. And again, this goes back to our motives. What is our motive? Is it to bring condemnation or sanctification? Is it to bring glory to God and good to one another? Or is it to bring the hammer down and make ourselves look more righteous? Now, as a final word on this, I'd like to turn to the book of James, James chapter 2. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is the higher ground. James calls to mind this royal law found in Scripture, this royal law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the royal law of our heavenly king. That is what we're called to. And that needs to be our guiding light for making evaluations, making right judgments. And then he says... Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Whenever we render judgments, we need to be clothed with mercy, with grace. So in closing, as a, just kind of a recap, Jesus didn't condemn all forms of judgment whatsoever, but calls people to make a right judgment. First and foremost... We are not to judge those outside the church. When we do make judgments, when we do make evaluations, we should probably do so slowly, with caution. Not by mere appearances, get the facts. We are not to judge hypocritically, and we're not to go on this uh, witch hunt, so to speak, seeking out sin that we may find fault in others we need to turn our eyes inward and examine our own hearts and our own lives before we even think about criticizing others we need to check our motives 
What, if, if we're even going to mention something to somebody else about their life and how it's not in order after checking ourselves, what's the point? What's the point of pointing out something in somebody else's life? It better be because you love them and you're trying to help them. Not because you're trying to condemn them, make them feel guilty, or make them feel small. And finally, I believe that we should err on the side of grace. Better not to judge. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray.